Welcome back to The Secret Life of Leaders, where you get unprecedented access to the inner workings of Australia's leading thinkers and practitioners at the forefront of environmental, social and governance change. The cutting edge of change can often feel lonely, but you're not alone here. The Secret Life of Leaders rehumanizes the experience of life and leadership and creates a platform for us all to learn and grow together. Let's dive in. Jesse Richardson spent 20 years manipulating people into buying things they probably don't need and is now balancing out his ethical karma by using his powers for good instead of evil. He is an internationally award-winning creative director and the founder of the School of Thought International, a US-based nonprofit which has provided free critical thinking resources to more than 30 million people worldwide in seven languages. Jesse has been featured in such highfalutin places as the World Economic Forum and Forbes, tweeted by people as nice and interesting as Stephen Fry and Dr. Carl, and his TEDx talk on critical thinking has been viewed over 700,000 times. He lives in Brisbane, where he is currently collaborating with the University of Queensland's Critical Thinking Project on a gamified website to combat conspiracy thinking. Jesse, I've invited you onto the Secret Life of Leaders because of your unique ability to challenge and educate on not what to think, but how to think about the big existential problems and opportunities of the world. And I'd love to learn about your approach to leadership and share this with our listeners. Welcome to the Secret Life of Leaders, Jesse Richardson. Thanks so much, Ash. That's a lovely introduction. You're welcome. So, Jesse, we might just start at the natural place and I'll have you introduce yourself in whatever way is natural to you. I'd love to know a little bit about who you are, what your life has been like and how it's led you to this establishing this body of knowledge around critical thinking and offering it for free to the world. Sure. Well, the stock standard response to these sorts of things is to give one's professional background, but I'll maybe give a little bit more context than that. I was the weird kid at school. (laughs) I was uh, the arty kind of different and often not quite part of the group. Strange kid doing role play drama weirdness off in the corner. And then that translated perfectly as it turned out. Grunge and alternative culture in the 90s as I became a teenager coincided perfectly with my rebellious, angsty, grandiose ideas about how I was going to take down the system man. So I was raised by hippies. I was essentially brought up in a cult called Bhagwan Rajneesh Osho cult. And it was an interesting experience. They're all lovely people, actually. Unlike most cults, there was nothing very terrible happening. It was just basically a bunch of hippies that were experiencing free love and, you know, having a nice time together. (laughs) So an interesting childhood. My dad is a, a jazz musician and a stoner. And so I grew up going to about seven or eight different schools in different parts of the world and generally having a pretty abnormal childhood, I would say. And the education system never really suited me all that well, Angela. It didn't it didn't quite stick. And I always felt like a, a square peg and attempting to fit into various round holes. And so I think the I dropped out of high school in grade 10 and went to study design. And it was, I think the education system essentially failed me pretty spectacularly mm. insofar as I was deeply unengaged with school. And I was a bright kid and I loved books and learning, but it was just not an environment conducive to people who think differently. Mm. And so I kind of went off on my own track doing design and and climbed the ladder of that industry from being a, you know, a finished artist to a designer to a art director and then a creative director eventually and winning all the shiny awards and so forth. But I always felt this kind of I don't know, I suppose a a feeling that there was something amiss in terms of my own experience with education. So I think I would have really loved to have gone on to academia. I love philosophy and I've been reading philosophy since I was about 13 or 14 years old. And so I had this, this kind of feeling like there was something missing in our education system and for me personally. And I was also getting really, I guess, frustrated arguing with people who are wrong on the internet. It's a futile pursuit, isn't it? it, Well, this is the conclusion I came to, yes, as many others have. (laughs) (laughs) And the reality of it 
is that it doesn't really matter if you win the argument because you usually serve only to entrench somebody else's views. And so I had this kind of despairing morass of futility politically and otherwise, feeling like I couldn't really make a difference to the things I cared about. And I had this epiphany moment when I was having a, a fish burger at Fish Lovers and Rosalie back in about, I'd say, 2007 or so. And I was on my lunch break and I kind of like just had this one of those those clarity epiphany moments where I realized that what I could do is take everything I know about the world of design and advertising and marketing and put that together with what I know about philosophy and critical thinking and rationality as a member of the rational skeptic community. And if we combine those two things, maybe that could actually do something to to help people because I guess the conclusion is that Unless we teach the next generation how to think for themselves, we might all be doomed. And as events have played out over the subsequent 15 years or so, that would appear to be a prescient realization. So I, I founded the School of Thought in 2015 after doing a website called yourlogicalfallacyis.com, where we combined design with philosophy, essentially, such that anyone could put together a anyone could take could tag somebody online with a fallacy that are committing. So yourlogicalfallacyis.com slash strawman if you're misrepresenting someone's arguments or yourlogicalfallacyis.com slash appeal to nature if you're using that fallacious reasoning. And that took off and went viral and we've been going forward ever since. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Thank you for that chronology and summary of your timeline that led you here. And I'm sure there are a lot of people in our audience who will resonate with a different style of thinking, not being the mainstream or the conventional way and how the systems that we operate in in school and then later in like higher education and business don't really allow for that. And I think what I've seen or noticed in your story is just resilience and adaptability and uh, adherence to independent thinking it's independent thinking but it's the sovereignty really of your thinking and honoring that yeah it's interesting there's i think being a divergent thinker someone who thinks independently and you know on their own terms it can be a good thing or a bad thing right like there's a lot of people that are think a lot of crazy things that consider themselves independent thinkers and so it, what's important is for us to reach a point of calibration and balance between that which is rational and that which is divergent. So divergent and convergent thinking combined, the synthesis of those is what's important. That's the secret formula. Mm. Mm. The synthesis of divergent and convergent thinking. Perhaps we'll hold that concept or would you like to explore that more deeply now? Sure. So it's often thought of as these kind of like either or properties. People think about divergent thinking or creative thinking as something that is the purview of artists. It's expressive and it's colorful and it's vibrant and it has no tether to reality necessarily, otherwise it wouldn't have artistic merit. And on the flip side, we think of convergent or analytical or rational thinking as being this very reductive property that scientists do and, you know, very serious about and so forth. And of course, both of those views are not only limited, but quite wrong in many respects, because all problem solving, which encompasses all of what we do in our professional work, is an exercise in both creative and critical thinking. We need to think divergently in terms of being able to think innovatively, being able to think about different solutions and being able to think about things in terms of what ifs, not just what is. And then we need to hold that to account through critical thinking. And instead of everyone being on board with whatever ideology or mind frame or context we find ourselves in or way of doing things that we do in our businesses, being able to challenge that as well. And so both divergent and convergent thinking or creative and critical thinking are are the terms for it, are deeply important in and of themselves. But when you synthesize them together, both within an individual and within an organization, um, that's where the magic source happens. That's where you get something more than the sum of its parts. The emergent property of combining divergent creative thinking and convergent critical thinking is something that we might call wisdom, I think. It's the discernment to be able to move beyond that which is 
in a way that is still tethered to reality and understands things. Beautiful. And I think you've just described as a facilitator, I see the polarization in rooms of people that I facilitate. We have our expansive creative thinkers by nature and then our analyzing, critiquing thinkers by their nature. Mm -hmm. And my job as a facilitator is often to get them communicating at the intersections. So I think that's the way you've described Mm -hmm. that. It's been very enlightening. Thank you. So with all of this introduction in mind, Jesse, what impact are you desiring to have in the world and why are you so passionate about it? Well, I have grandiose ambitions, Angela. <laughs> you know, I was just saying things should be tethered to reality. Mine probably aren't, to be candid. So I think we are at this point in history at an inflection point where we are facing down several pretty real existential threats in this century. Existential threats in terms of things like nuclear war, which is a is a sort of Damocles still hanging over us, and like biological warfare and terrorism, as we've seen with the COVID pandemic, the reality for that is pretty dire. And that's if you can imagine technology getting to a point where anybody might be able to sequence a virus that has a fatality rate of over 60 or 70% and a communicability rate similar to measles, that's a very real existential threat. And then there's a whole lot of other technological threats such as nanotechnology, artificial superintelligence, all these sorts of things that we as a species are going to have to deal with, not to mention climate change and so forth as well, Mm. over the next 50 to 100 years. And if we are in our current state of, how shall I put this, less than optimized and aligned political and sociological understanding, such that we have to deal with these problems whilst deeply divided, confused, and not able to galvanize around the challenges that we are facing. So yeah, I think there's a very real potential that we may be doomed if we aren't able to uh, work together and understand things as a species, not just as individuals, because we can't rely on that very clearly. And so what we hope to do is to essentially popularize critical thinking, reason, and understanding in such a way that it becomes a cultural shift, not just uh, moving the needle a little bit to make the school system a little bit better, but I think drastic times call for drastic action. And so our ambitions are set pretty high. Given the size of that challenge, how do you stay passionate about it? I think the easy answer is I love my children. And I want them to grow up in a world that is at least as good as the one that I grew up in. And I grew up in a pretty great world. And I suppose the more abstract answer is that I think we have a moral duty to try and do what we can because we are so privileged and so blessed and so very lucky to be alive at this point in history. Most of human beings, and in fact, most of all animal life on this planet has been primarily a study in suffering, tooth and claw, and not a pleasant experience at all. And that's true for still most human beings within on Earth alive today. And this brief, beautiful window of prosperity and freedom and the capacity to be self-determining and to enjoy a life of comfort and leisure and connection with other human beings is something we all very much take for granted. But we ought not to, because it is an amazing thing. If you could be a serf in the feudal system in the Middle Ages or someone living in prehistory and see the technological marvels and resources and wonderful lives that people like us get to live, it would look nothing short of heaven. You would think that it was better than you could have imagined heaven to be. And yet we may be squandering it. And so I think for all of those that have come before us to pave the way for this beautiful moment in history that we are getting to enjoy, it's incumbent upon all of us to attempt to protect and perpetuate that which we have into the future. Thank you. I feel like that was a shot in the arm of perspective and responsibility and, yes, honouring the opportunities in this window that we have. So thank you for describing that so eloquently. Jesse, your body of work, your various ventures, 
for-profit and non-profit abroad. What are the biggest wins across those ventures? Challenging and educating people about critical thinking. What have been your biggest successes? Well, I mean, it's one of those funny things, isn't it? You you don't see people's failures because they don't tell you about them. <laughs> but it's I have had them as well. So I want to caveat talking about some of the things that we've done that have been successful with the fact that I tried lots of things and they didn't work as well. I think there's this survivorship bias as one of the things we teach people, which is that we see these success stories and people tell their Instagram filtered lives of success without mentioning all of the confusion and failures and everything else that led to those, right? So it's, it's very easy to kind of like have this exalted view of anyone that we might consider to be successful. And some people are just lucky a lot of the time, or they are born into money and then they have their garage stories that they like to proffer, but they may not be representative. And then we also miss the, the failures along the way that a lot of people have as well. So I think probably the best successes we've had have been the what we did as a pilot program, yourlogicalfallacyis.com website. We didn't expect that to be quite as popular as it was. We put that out there essentially just to see if it would get some traction. And it immediately blew up and got hit the front page of Reddit, got tweeted by Stevie Fry, Stephen Fry and Jimmy Wales and several thousand other people and was then melted our servers and it's it, it went pretty drastically viral pretty quickly and was then, I think it's had, uh, you said it in the intro, but it's reached about 30 million people now, but about 6 million people download the Creative Commons poster for the Fallacies website. And from that, we thought we were going to, this grandiose vision I had to create a free online philosophy curriculum that anyone could access. I, I was like, well, great. Now that the philanthropist is going to give me a big bag of money and I can quit my day job and do that. But it didn't quite work out like that. So we thought, oh, well, we'll do a sister site on cognitive biases. And that also went immediately viral, hit the front page of Reddit, got tweeted by lots of famous people and featured in World Economic Forum and Forbes and a whole lot of other visual capitalist other magazines and so forth. And still no bag of money from a philanthropist, which to be fair to the philanthropists of the world, maybe in part owing to the fact that I have no idea how to approach philanthropists and didn't really try very hard. Well, for any who may be listening today, let's consider the, the door open. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ironically, we've just received our first two philanthropic donations in the last year or so, right after I kind of like, so the, the next part of the story is that we went, okay, well, like we've done these couple of projects that have been successful. And people started asking for prints of the posters because I was releasing them under Creative Commons free for everybody. And they said, well, that's great, but it's going to cost me $90 to get that printed locally. If you did a print run, you could sell it a lot cheaper. And I was like, okay. So I did that and we started selling posters. And then people said, why don't you do a deck of cards? That'd be great. And so I was like, you know, listen to your customers, listen to your users. I said, okay. So we did a Kickstarter and we raised about a hundred grand there. And we've now, I think, sold over 100,000 decks of those cards and about $3 million worth over the last couple of years, which is good. But it was we thought we were going to be well-funded well into the future because that was going really well. But then Facebook changed the algorithm such that because our average order value was about $40, the cost per conversion went from about $10 to about $25, which completely killed our margin. So we had all these projects in the works. And we're like, oh, no, <laughs> we can't finish them now. We don't have any money. So I put out a call to philanthropists just to now. We had a database of about 120,000 people and asked if anybody would consider supporting the rest of this project called The Conspiracy Test, which is essentially a gamified way to help us question conspiracy theories and increase skepticism and rationality. And... Uh, very luckily, there was a philanthropist on our database who emailed back almost immediately and said, yeah, I'm in. So that was apparently, I talked to other people in the nonprofit world and they said, that's not how that works generally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were very lucky and he helped fund the the completion of that. Was, his name's Greg Koch. He's the founder of Stone Brewing in the United States. And he he very kindly donated to help finish that project. And we also got another smaller donation from another first for the conspiracy test. And we're looking to launch that in the next couple of months. Publicly, we're in private beta at the moment, 
and that's going really well. And we've got academic support from University of Queensland, and we're talking to some other academics around the world to launch that into a formal research study. But yes, so hopefully things are on the up and up there and we, we eventually find that philanthropic pot of gold to be able to realise our vision to help stage a cultural and educational intervention in the world and and hopefully avoid the various existential threats that bear down upon us, Angela. Yes. Thank you for all of that context. And as I say, let's consider the door open for generous contributions to Jesse's campaign. Even though you productized some of the material into posters and cards, which had to be sold, you've essentially, though, released almost all of your material for free. And I'm wondering why. Why is that important to you? Why have you chosen that route? I suppose I've been on the internet since 1994. And I think there are a few misguided sort of ideologies that that align themselves with what happened in that sphere. But I do very much, I'm not a libertarian by any measure, but I do believe in the precept of the information wants to be free. And I'm also quite a fan of Seth Godin, the marketing genius. And he wrote a book called, well, actually, I'm going to fully remember the title. It was Free the Mind Virus or Just the Mind Virus in the late 90s, where he essentially released an ebook for free for the world and generated a lot of profile for himself in doing so. And the takeout there for me is that I think we look at a lot of what we do in terms of commercial interests as being something that we need is an adversarial exchange where we're attempting to extract value from customers where we should look at it more as a relationship where it is it should be a, a positive feedback loop where we can provide something of value and that, that is a reciprocal arrangement rather than thinking about it in terms of how can I get something out of this arrangement, which is a much more selfish lens. And so I think that by providing value and making things free and open and transparent, it just philosophically and practically promotes more positive things for yourself and the world at large. Mm-hmm. And uh, those things should be in balance. There's this idea of selfishness is necessarily a bad thing, but it's funny because if you're really selfish in a relationship with somebody, you'll give a lot to that other person. <laughs> it's in your interests to keep your partner very happy um, and to be kind to them and empathetic and to listen to them and to care for them. Because being selfish in the sense that we do what's in our short-term myopic interests is unhealthy for our relationships and for ourselves in the same way that you know eating fast food is maybe something we desire, but it's not actually healthy for us. And similarly, this translates to our romantic relationships, our friendship relationships, and our business relationships as well. If we think about things in terms of what does it really mean to be selfish, the inexorable conclusion we must come to is that to be as selfish as we possibly can, we ought to be altruistic and generous and kind and empathetic and do things in the service of other people because those things promote and beget so many more positive things than if we attempt to extract short-term gains for ourselves alone. Wow, Jesse, you've just really encapsulated why it feels so good to give. Mm, totally. Yeah. And Beautiful. It's beneficial. This is yeah. a great tragedy, right, is that we think that we're at odds and yet there are so many opportunities for positive sum games. We're all in like either zero sum games or negative sum game mindsets. So much of the time we are thinking, well, if I have to get something, somebody else has to lose. And that's that's the general view of capitalism is that there's only so, so much market share. And so I have to stomp on somebody else's market share or undermine them or race to the bottom of the price or to be able to compete. And so we have this mindset that generates and promulgates and and perpetuates that idea in our actions. And it doesn't need to be that way. There There is so much opportunity for positive sum games where everybody can benefit. It can be win-win and no one actually has to lose. We can provide value and receive value and it needn't be at anybody else's expense. 
as you're demonstrating with the school of thought and really expanding our definition and understanding of value. So thank you for explaining that. Speaking of the school of thought, can you help us understand the various areas of critical thinking and how they can improve our approach to complex problem solving? You mentioned a few of the complex existential problems that are coming our way now and into the future. What are the various areas of critical thinking and how, how can they help? So there's it's multifaceted. There's no simple answers, but I'll try and give a succinct as, an answer as I can. <laughs> so I think the first thing to say is that when we think about our thinking, what we call metacognition in academic circles is a reflective state of mind in which we are thinking about our own thinking and considering how and why we think the things that we do. When we do that, we change the mindset with which we view the world because what we do most of the time is we use what we already know and we can call those heuristics in a way. We have shortcuts of thinking, beliefs, ideas, mental models that we carry around with us. And we use those as a toolbox to navigate the world and to be able to apply what we know and what we think we know to be able to get through our days, to be able to solve our problems, take advantage of our opportunities and so forth. And what critical thinking does is it says, let's step back. Let's consider that there might be a different perspective Let's, instead of just reacting to situations, reflect upon them. So more important than any of the specific tools we use for critical thinking is the mindset of critical thinking. There's a, a public intellectual and author named Julia Galef, and she wrote a book called The Scout Mindset. And I think this is a really wonderful meta-mental model for thinking about how we ought to approach everything generally. And then we can talk about the specifics thereafter. And what Scout Mindset says is that it's a contrast to soldier mindset. Soldier mindset is I must defend my beliefs, I must go into battle, I must, you know, I'm an unthinking automaton that's just following the precepts of my culture, my upbringing, my belief sets, my way of doing things within this company, the way my father did it, the way my peers do it, whatever else. It's unthinking and unreflective. What Scout Mindset is, is to say, well, I'm going to suspend my belief and my disbelief and just try and evaluate impartially what's really going on. And if I do that, then I will have a better map of what reality is. So my objective is to be truth-seeking rather than justifying my own beliefs. And if I find something, if I actively go about attempting to find something that challenges my beliefs, then I'll have a much better map. I'll have a much better fidelity map of reality as it is. And so the scout mindset is about going out into the world and trying to view it impartially and actively challenging yourself to be able to think about things in a different way. And that different way could be divergent in terms of thinking about other possibilities or convergent in terms of thinking, well, hang on, does the data really hold up here? Are we just working on assumptions and not really thinking about what's going on on the ground? So it can, it can manifest in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of different critical thinking tools we can employ to check and to prompt ourselves to be thinking that way. But the most important thing is the mindset with which we go into things, to be able to be in a reflective, open, creative critical mindset at the outset that is receptive to new information and is willing to measure it and hold it to account. Mm, there was so much value in what you've just said there, starting with this concept of metacognition and the ability to think about your thinking and reflect on its effectiveness. And then some of the themes pulling through with that mindset of truth-seeking as opposed to justifying our position and bringing in critical thinking frames. If we can hold ourselves in that space of curiosity, ambiguity, complexity, mm. and manage the interior discomfort that we experience when we're leaning into that space, and this is the experience of many of my clients solving these big complex problems, and it's sometimes why I see them lean towards simplicity too soon, convergence mm -hmm. of a small data set that doesn't represent the scale of the problem, they can simplify it too soon to reach the internal experience of certainty. 
rather yeah. than genuinely solve the problem at the scale at which it exists. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the word discomfort because I think that that's a really like doubt and discomfort are things we attempt to avoid. And we're very, very well trained to avoid them and to our peril because being comfortable and being uncomfortable is a really important part of being able to grow personally and to be able to think both creatively and critically. So unless you're comfortable with being uncomfortable and aware of yourself metacognitively, that that's okay. And actually you can hold on that. Then you're not going to get, you're, you're very suboptimal in your potential to be able to move forward because what we do most of the time, especially so in creative fields, this is, this is very evident whenever you're brainstorming with people and you're trying to get to an idea and usually you've got this problem you want to solve and you're looking at a range of different ideas and what will happen is there'll be bad ideas and as soon as you come across a good idea you will latch onto it and you will dig in your claws and you will not let go <laughs> you will find ways to with motivated reasoning justify and tangentize and bring in whatever else you need to justify why this is the best idea, the only idea, and we should not consider any more possibilities because you don't like being in that uncomfortable space of not knowing what the answer is. We've been trained for probably at least 10, if not 15 or more years in our education system to get to the right answer. And if you're wrong, then you've done something bad and you should never play. So, being in that space of discomfort is really important. And also on the critical side of things, being okay with doubt and saying, well, this might be a good solution, but we don't know yet. So let's test it. And this could work, but we're not sure if all of our premises are actually true. And so maybe we need to talk to some people within our market and find out and so on and so forth. But in both cases, both on the creative and the critical side of things, the important part is to be comfortable and being uncomfortable, to actively seek out being in that uncomfortable space, because that is where we can actually get to things that make a lot more sense, that work a lot better, and that serve our objectives in the longer term instead of just serving our short-term objective of feeling more comfortable. Mm. I think what you're describing there is an acknowledgement and an understanding of that we're in this endless open system of questioning and the, there'll be milestones of understanding and milestones of certainty and what sits around those milestones are uncertainty and discomfort and you know sometimes the work I do with my clients is around strategy and leadership strategy but quite often it's the work of personal development and that is managing the interior or internal experience of trusting ourselves to sit in that discomfort to be able to identify the emotion or emotions that we're experiencing and then to trust ourselves to actually experience them such that we can stay open in this open system of questioning. And I think that that's, that's the key to one of the keys to approaching complex problems. Absolutely. And it's a curious thing because I, I love paradoxes and the, the way that you must simultaneously sit in a state of discomfort and doubt and yet also have the resilience and confidence to be able to trust your intuitions and have an optimistic view of things and not just descend into naysaying cynicism is the tension between those seeming opposites I think yields an interesting emergent property of leadership. Interesting. Uh, in my simple language, I say we hold space for both and the value is at the intersection of both of those concepts. That's probably better. <laughs> I like to say things simply, Jesse. What can I tell you? It's, it's yeah. my, the only way for me. <laughs> so in terms of teaching the world about critical thinking and the more mature mindsets that we need to be able to hold this space for critical thinking, what are the encouraging signs of change that you've noticed in the world and how are the projects that you lead? helping that evolution so that's an interesting question i went from like being despairing about the world and our prospects to thinking maybe i could do something about it by combining philosophy and design and helping to popularize critical thinking and reason and then when we put the theologicalfallacies.com website out into the world it took off and people loved it and it was growing got a lot of positive feedback 
But I noticed over the subsequent few years that a lot of the time, although our intention was to open up minds and to foster critical reasoning and make people engage in more good faith conversations in a way, it was also being weaponized as a smackdown to like essentially close down conversations and say, I'm right, you're wrong. Here's the fallacy you've committed. You're an idiot. Go away. Right. And I've been guilty of this myself as well. And in like the time post Trump Brexit, I really kind of like came to, I guess, another epiphany, another realization that like, well, really, we need to think about what it is that we're doing here, because are we just adding to polarization and tribalism by giving people these critical thinking tools, which they can then deploy as weapons? To lock them into their current position and win the argument effectively. Mm. essentially thinking like having, and especially within the rational skeptic community, is this very kind of hubristic, dismissive and contemptuous attitude that I think is antithetical to actually promoting critical reasoning in the world. It actually shuts people down and makes them more entrenched in their beliefs. And so I was, I'm very heartened. So I went from pessimism to optimism and then to pessimism. And now I'm back at optimism again, Angela, because what we kind of looked at over a couple of years, a friend of mine, David McRaney, he's the author of a book called You Are Not So Smart, which I highly recommend. And his new book is called How Minds Change. And I was on a podcast about six years ago, and we had an off-air conversation for two or three hours after we recorded, talking about this book project he's working on, How Minds Change. And we went off in our own separate ways and came back as he's publishing that, and we were doing the conspiracy test. And like so many of the conclusions we'd come to were very similar. But the upshot of it all is that the idea that we are all intractably, hopelessly entrenched in our beliefs is essentially wrong. There is this pervasive view, this 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 pernicious pervasive view that the world as it stands is so divided, so polarized, and people are so entrenched in their beliefs that there's really no point talking to them. You're hitting your head against a brick wall. And what David very beautifully helped to bring to light in his book, How Minds Change, is that the science very vehemently disagrees with that thesis. What the science shows is that actually people are very willing to change their minds given the right conditions. We as human beings are adaptive creatures. That is our greatest asset and perhaps our greatest proclivity as well, is that we are very primed to adapt and change when circumstances demand it or when they're conducive to it. And what the research on mind changing and and belief mobility shows very clearly is that if you engage people in good faith and present to them both rational and emotional reasons why they might want to change their mind, they do. They do quite willingly. So there was this research called deep canvassing that was conducted in California by LGBTQI advocates who went round to people and said, hey, what are you thinking of voting on this proposition about marriage equality? And on on a scale of one to 10. And the people said, I'm very conservative, so it'd be like a two or whatever. And and they said, okay, well, basically they told this story. And they said, well, I'm a gay man and I've been with my partner for 12 years. And if he gets sick and in hospital because his parents don't accept me, I won't be able to visit him if he's dying in hospital. Do you think that's morally right? Or whatever else it might be. They did subsequent studies with abortion and other politically charged issues that we have this idea that people are morally absolutely intractably unwilling to change their minds about. And what happened is that people were very willing to change their minds once you did one, building rapport, two, bringing in a probabilistic scale. So as soon as you go from me for this or against it and you go, well, on a scale of one to 10, where are you? How likely do you think this is to be true, this conspiracy theory or whatever else? And as soon as you do that very deftly, you've gone and changed the way someone thinks about something because then they're thinking in terms of rationality and probability, which are liquid quantities, rather than absolute black and white thinking. And then the other thing they did was what I like to think of as a metacognitive time machine. Let me unpack that concept just very quickly. 
So please. <laughs> what the metacognitive time machine does is it gives people the agency to go back in time to when they formed a belief and make a different decision. If you say to someone, when did you form this belief about, say, a woman's right to choose or about marriage equality? And then they think about it for a second and then they got to go back to themselves as a 10-year-old sitting in a pew in church or whatever it was or their father saying to them or their grandmother or whatever. And they get to make a decision about that belief that they have formed and carried with them and defended for their whole lives without actually having ever deliberated about it. And so if you give people the agency to be able to travel back in time in terms of their beliefs and really think about it and question it openly instead of defensively, what we find is that they're actually quite willing to change their minds. So I have a lot of optimism in terms of the possibility the latent potential of human beings to be able to rise to challenges, to galvanize and to work together to solve problems. We have come so incredibly far and achieved so many wonderful things. And there is this feeling that we can't really do anything about all of the ills in the world at the moment. And I think that's just plain wrong. And so I want to spread both the instrumental ways that we can challenge the things that are wrong in the world and also challenge the belief that we can't do anything because I think we can. Mm. Minds can be changed. Minds can be changed. Mm. So articulately described. Thank you, Jesse. With that in mind, I wonder if that's the most optimistic sign, the fact that your experience and the research is pointing to the fact that beliefs can shift over time with information. What are the biggest challenges in leading this complex social change around critical thinking? And what have you learned so far? Sure. So the biggest challenges are essentially having a means to be able to have the right kinds of conversations and interventions that facilitate changing people's minds. And I've pretty much given up on reforming the education systems of the world. I had in mind the, I, I sort of always knew this to some extent. And as a nonprofit, we always, our position was rather than attempting to reform the education system, we'd work outside of it more like a tugboat than trying to pull on the wheel and just provide free Creative Commons resources for any parent, charter school, Montessori, whatever to use and demonstrate its value. And then hopefully it would have a bottom-up effect. But I don't think one, we have the time and I don't think that the bureaucratic systems are such that it is viable to reform them in the ways that they need to be reformed in the time that we need to reform them. And so I guess what I've learned is that I think we need more of a cultural intervention that changes our mindset on a cultural level and that that needs to filter through to the education system thereafter. And this kind of correlates to another thing I've learned in the last 10 years where I thought that providing rational critical thinking tools would be what we needed to do. And I still believe that to a large extent, they're very useful. But I guess what both the psychological research, the sociological research, and just my own personal understanding of all kind of converged on in that time is to understand that we are social and emotional creatures before we are cognitive machines. And if we don't understand that, then things don't tend to work very well strategically and otherwise. If we understand that human beings are driven by emotion and driven by social cues, then we can have a lot more purchase and leverage to be able to affect change. And so that's the new direction that I guess I'm moving in is, is through a deeper understanding of those precepts and attempting to have influence in the world through that understanding. So tugging on the heartstrings instead of the mindsets, perhaps. Yeah. Or at the same, at the same time. No, no. So like, that's interesting. So mindsets, so this is a really interesting concept, is that we think of things like there's knowledge and then there's emotion and there's wisdom as this other concept of what that means of how we bring understanding to things. But a mindset is like an attitude in a way. In philosophy, we think of it as a kind of an ontological frame, a worldview that you come into things with. And if your mindset is wanting to be truth-seeking, like in scout mindset, 
or another way of thinking about that is a scientific mindset that wants to measure and find the truth of things. It's very different to coming into things with motivated reasoning. And the the first rule of metacognitive critical thinking club is that you apply it to yourself before anybody else. And you can talk to whoever you like about it, but the important thing is <laughs> to not presume that critical thinking is for somebody else, it's for you. And unless we genuinely embody an attitude and a mindset of intellectual humility in ourselves, then we can't presume it to be applicable to anybody else. We need to come into things with good faith and a really slight tangent here, but a really good mental model is something called the principle of charity where if ever you're in a disagreement with somebody, attempt to articulate their view and demonstrate that you've understood it by articulating their view in such a way that they say to you explicitly, I couldn't have said that better myself. That's exactly what I mean. If you've done that, then you will find that you'll have a lot more productive conversations because instead of two ships passing in the night of your misunderstandings and miscommunications, you will be able to synthesize your perspectives because everyone has a valid perspective. It's very, very seldom the case that someone is just plain wrong about something. It's usually just that we don't understand each other very well. And so doing the work to be able to understand somebody else's perspective is 90-something percent of the battle. So wise. So what could this cultural intervention look like? Well. (laughs) Is it a secret? That's a little bit. Secret business Um, project? It is. That is is the ultimate goal of what we're attempting to do as a school of thought. So I'm not going to give the, uh, let's let's create just a mystery box and say that the project relies on using the dark arts of persuasion and manipulation that I've learned through advertising to leverage the darkest aspects of human characteristics from our desire to have status and gamble and other things that are perhaps not the better angels of our nature, and transmutate that into an optimistic utopia that saves us all. I can hardly wait, Jesse, <laughs> to see the <laughs> manifestation of that. We'll keep that in the in the mystery box for now. Tell us, if you don't mind, about your experience of neurodiversity and how it helps you in work and life. Sure. Well, it helps and hinders. I haven't had a formal ADHD diagnosis, but it's pretty bloody obvious. So I was always distracted and very effusive and dramatic and just divergent in the way that I thought and acted as a child. And so that was a hindrance to me socially and academically. When I was in grade nine, I think I got like the top marks in my advanced science class, but failed normal science. So I didn't like the teacher very much. I was I was an odd student. And so being neurodivergent is often something that I think there's these two camps. And one is that it's a pathology and it's bad and we have to put people on Ritalin and there has to be treated purely as a pathology. And it's not that the a lot of people's lives, people with ADD in particular, their lives are transformed by medication. It helps them to function and it is an absolute miracle for them in many respects. So I'm not at all saying anything negative about medication, but just the mindset of that it's it's purely negative and purely a pathology. And then on the other side, you have this camp that say neurodiversity is actually a superpower and it is the most wonderful thing and it's all the best people in the world and neurodivergent and so forth. So my synthesized view of those two camps I would like to proffer is that it is a deficit and it can really debilitate people. So we shouldn't put these kind of glossed over exaltations, but it can be deeply traumatic and difficult for a lot of people and can really hinder their progress in in many respects. However, the flip side of that is is that if you can manage to through luck or circumstance or self-determination, harness some of the the positives that come out of neurodiversity there's a reason why they call adhd the ceo disease because often it's the the hyperfixation and dogged determinism and resilience and divergent thinking and all of these sorts of things can combine in an individual in such a way that gives them the determination to be able to do what others maybe are less determined to do and so For me personally, it's been a trial and error process (laughs) that I'm still working out. And 
my mum said something to me once that don't trust anyone who tells you they've found the truth, just trust people who are looking for it. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that because the idea that there are any formulas or silver bullets, I think is just wrong. And I kind of enjoy the flux, I guess, of being in that state of discomfort we talked about before and and not having all the answers and and genuinely trying to embody self-doubt and intellectual humility. And we're all kind of making shit up as we go along and trying to figure it out. And it's nice to be able to share that with people as well and and to recognize it because then we can all breathe out a little bit and go, oh, yeah, it's not just me. I'm not just the only one that's feeling like I have imposter syndrome. Pretty much everyone I know that has any real value has some element of imposter syndrome that they're dealing with. That's so resonant for me, which means it feels truthful to me. And when something feels truthful, I feel a palpable sense of relief. So thank you for sharing your experience of neurodiversity that I'm sure we can all connect to. Jesse, what is your approach to self-leadership? How do you take care of yourself when you're doing this big, important work in the world of educating around critical thinking? Well, to be honest, it's a work in progress. I haven't figured that out with any anything that I would call confidence yet, Angela. So what I do know works for myself being neurodivergent is relying on outsourcing a lot of the things that I'm not good at. For instance, calendar management and times and those sorts of things. If I've got something that buzzes in my pocket and gives me an alert at several intervals before something happens, I'm a lot more likely to turn up for it than otherwise is the case. But then on the other side of things, like more holistically, there's a Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of thing where if I'm taking care of myself physically, I'm much better able to cope with everything else that's cognitive and emotional and everything else as well. So giving myself enough space, a run about 30 to 40 kilometers a week. And that's as someone who can't switch their brain off to meditate properly. <laughs> I recognize the benefits of meditation and I believe all of the, the literature and the science around it, but I just have real difficulty stilling my mind. But if I'm running, I get into a meditative state and I can feel the physiological effects of that very tangibly. And there's positive flow on effects everywhere else in my life as a result of that. So that helps in that respect. So trying to be, and I guess the other thing is attempting to, I think I was hard on myself when I was younger for the shortcomings that I had, being more accepting of what those shortcomings are rather than attempting to change them, rather work with them. And I think there's there's an important lesson there for everybody else as well when you're leading is to give people the autonomy and responsibility to be able to manage things in a way that suits them rather than presuming that there's a cookie cutter approach. Mm. We have to micromanage everybody. I love that. And as a business owner, I would imagine you have a good deal of agency over the approach to working in that flexible way that suits you best. I'm just wondering what your opinion is on business these days and how well we do that. Has it improved after the pandemic? What do you think? Well, I think it certainly shook things up, right? Like there was a pretty palpable sense of people who businesses that were running themselves and their employees in such a way as to be having an authoritarian mindset and micromanaging and attempting to make an adversarial process found that very challenging, I'm sure. And part of that just comes with scale. Even if you're the most progressively minded leader, there's just certain things that are difficult as we scale in terms of implementing processes and so forth. But I think it it reveals a truth that is a good thing to reveal insofar as the businesses that give there and foster and have frameworks that foster their employees' autonomy, flexibility, responsibility, and maturity will thrive in, an, in a hybrid work environment because you're like one, literally giving your employees more time, not have to commute one to two hours a day. And so they just have more space to be able to do things. And if you say, well, I don't really care if you start at 8.30 or 10.30, if it suits you better to get your kid to school 
and then come back and do a solid four hours of work with no one interrupting you, great. That works out better for, for everybody. As long as we can be sensible about it, then surely there's ways to do that. So I, I think that it provides a lot of opportunity for better business practices. And I'm a big fan of like Adam Grant and people like that that are progressively minded on that front as well. Completely agree with you to encourage self-responsibility in our workforce. I think it takes pressure off the employee as well as the employer. You know, I've seen employers over the years try to provide all of these frameworks of self-care. And for a moment, I think employees have felt more cared about at work. But I think underneath that, what the pandemic revealed for me is we're all craving a little bit more self-responsibility, the ability to determine our schedules, working hours, and how we take care of ourselves flexibly amongst that. How have you grown, Jesse, as a person in the years? You've got several projects on the go, developed several businesses, and I, I know you can't do that without personal growth. How have you changed and grown as a person through that journey? Oh, I mean, I suppose it's inevitable in many ways, right? And we have a tendency to want to see all of the ways that we succeed and grow as being a result of our own fantastic insights <laughs> and how very clever we've been to have been able to do this. But often the truth is some funny mix of yes, there's insights and you learn things, but also the things that you were maybe ignorant about or didn't understand properly kept rubbing up against the reality of the world in such a way that you couldn't ignore it any longer. There's a bit of that going on too. So for me, I think I have learned to be a little more cautious and empathetic than I used to be. I had, I think, no small measure of hubris when I was younger, and I've learned to be a little more humble in my approach and to listen better than I used to, also a neurodivergent challenge. And so I think that I can see very tangibly and in very real terms how that yields positive results for myself and for the people with whom I work. Well described. Thank you. So, Jesse, at the end of every episode, we ask, what are the two or three most important things being asked of you as a leader in bringing about positive change in the world? So I guess what has been required, which thankfully aligned to my own predilections and abilities or disabilities, depending on how you frame it, is maybe a dogged determination with things. There's been many moments in this journey where it's been less than ideal and not exactly what we'd hoped for in many different respects. And I have a tendency to just keep plucking away at something. Once I decide I want to do something, I'll just keep doing it until I achieve it. So dogged determination. Another one is grandiose ambition. We're kind of aiming for the stars. And I like that adage of aim for the stars if you want to get to the moon. There's utility in attempting to do anything positive. And we have some pretty grandiose ambitions at School of Thought of what we can do to impact the education system and culture and mindsets and politics and all these sorts of things. How much we achieve is a matter of reality rather than something fanciful. But I think that you kind of need to have that North Star of something, a vision that people can buy into before you begin. Otherwise, no one's going to want to join you. So you have to have a vision as a leader. And that kind of ties into maybe the third one, which is realistic optimism, which I think it's great to have a vision. But if no one believes in that vision, no one's going to follow you with it, you know. So making it real in terms of both what the goal is, but also being able to demonstrate proof points and milestones and that, well, actually, we have done this and this is possible. And being able to make that story believable, because it is authentically, is, I think, a really important part of that. So, for instance, we we're talking earlier about it's actually much easier to change or much more possible to change people's minds than most people think. And so if you can show that, it can be a real cause for optimism and can help to rally and galvanise people behind a vision. Beautiful. Thank you. Jesse, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to communicate to our listeners? 
Nothing immediately springs to mind, Angela, but thank you for the opportunity to talk about the horse. It's been interesting to reflect and just enjoyable to talk with you as well. So I appreciate it. And likewise. There was something pretty special about this interview with Jesse Richardson of the School of Thought, and that was around this topic of intellectual humility. Through the way he has answered my questions in the interview, through his tools that are available openly to us all in the School of Thought, he is educating us to approach problems from a range of perspectives, using a range of tools and lenses so that we can understand the problem more fully and perhaps not only speak from our original and deeply held positions. I hope that you take that away too. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Secret Life of Leaders. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We would love for you to share this podcast with friends, family, or colleagues who might be interested and inspired by its content. You can follow me, Angela Koning, on LinkedIn or Instagram. And until next time, lead yourself well and everything else falls into place.